episode 26 of the Water Break podcast. Here's your host, Heather Jennings. Welcome to Water Break, where we try to bridge the gap between water operators and engineers. In today's episode, we're going to discuss master planning with Devin Shields, who is a project engineer at Sunrise Engineering. Devin is a licensed engineer and where he develops water and wastewater infrastructure solutions like master plans, designs, and facility evaluations. He's had the privilege of working with water and sewer systems across the U.S. from consulting offices in Texas, Arizona, and Utah. Along with pumps and valves, he is really into garbage trucks, which I I think are pretty cool too, and excavators, and he is fluent in Norwegian. Welcome, Devin. Thanks, Heather. Thanks for having me. Okay, I know we've said the E word, engineer. Okay, so that's something that a lot of people are like, oh, no, not engineers. But I think what we're discussing today is really important to public utilities. So let's start talking about master planning. First of all, what is a master plan? A master plan guides decisions and shapes the policy for systems going forward. So that's the the nutshell version of that. Mm -hmm. And and why, why would we want the master plan? The biggest reason that master plans are helpful is because engineers and operators are a little bit different. Mm -hmm. You know, there's the stereotypes that are not unwarranted of of engineers. (laughs) Yeah. They were different kind of people. We think a little differently than operators. You know how to tell an extroverted engineer from an introverted engineer? Actually, I don't. Well, I mean, well, I do, but what's the punchline? The, the way you know is that an extroverted engineer will look at your shoes while he's talking to you instead of looking at his shoes while he's talking to you <laughs> or his or her shoes. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Yeah. We, we are a different breed. I, I will get, grant you that. Using that different view, why would these master plans be of use to operators and city officials? As a benefit and also a detriment is that the master plans give an avenue for operators to communicate mm-hmm. the issues that they're having with the systems and, and have those recorded and incorporated into a plan for addressing those issues. So that's a benefit, but it also is a detriment in that they kind of lose some of the capacity to complain about their systems if their input is incorporated into a master plan. So that's a a big part of um, a lot of my conversations with operators is gripes about how something is set up or how somebody didn't think this through and they put it together. And Mm -hmm. uh, so that's a challenge to deal with is that if we address some of those issues, we have to find something else new to complain about, but overall, it's a good thing (laughs) for sure. I've worked on these as well. And I enjoyed going out with the operators and it was beginning of my career. So I was the grunt. I got to go out and look at all the pump tags and sizing and valves and so forth like that. What I liked about master plans is that it just really planned for growth and replacements, maybe even improvements, like you mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. There's change in demands in all kinds of different systems, whether it's sewer, culinary water or irrigation and other kinds of systems. We're, we're focusing on water here, but mm-hmm. growth is, is a big one in the West and probably a lot of other places right now. It's something that we're dealing with in a lot of our, especially smaller communities around here. We've got places that are experiencing growth that haven't seen anything like this you know, since they were incorporated you know, a hundred years ago or whenever. So for systems to know how they can accommodate 
that growth and, and adjust to changing demands. It's a really important to get in a spot where you know how you're going to deal with the changes that are coming and, and not be caught under the gun when you're a little late on something. So Out here in Arizona with the housing market and stuff, it has been crazy. I've been looking at master plans over the years and I'm like, wow, that was really predicted really well. And then there was like, no one could have predicted this. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. 2020 kind of knocked everyone's plans a little off, but I I like how it also helps you think of like capital costs that are coming down the road. You know, we've got to upgrade the water system. We've got to upgrade the wastewater system. We know these regulatory issues are coming forward. What else does it help with? Projecting capital costs and talking about the 2020 kind of thrown a wrench in things. We thought the the population growth and demands projections are tough. Projecting capital costs really feels like a crapshoot right now with the construction and materials being a lot less stable and predictable than they were two years ago. Mm -hmm. We need to have something to plan for, even if it changes, even if it's not exactly what's going to happen and and what things are really going to cost, uh, both for funding operations and maintenance budgets as those need to increase and capital improvements that kind of drive the conversations on, well, what kind of rates do we need to charge Uh and what kind of funding packages can we pursue for different aspects that we're looking at? The public really notices those changes. And I've seen some cities use their master plan as a way of saying, this is why, you know, part of that PR portion to the the customer, you know, this is something we've been looking at. This is something that has to happen. If you want water in the future or be able to flush your toilet in the future, which that seems to be pretty important to everyone. Right. So there's a lot that goes into these master plans. I mean, that's kind of like an overview. What do you, what do you think a master plan should really do though? There's several different areas that we can look at in in doing a master plan. And and really, it depends on what a system needs. If you don't have much growth on your horizons or or don't anticipate much, Mm -hmm. doesn't mean you won't have it, but you you might need a really basic plan. If you have a general idea of of what you're going to be up against with growth and, and change in demands, the first main area that any master plan should cover is assessing system capacity versus the demands on the system. Mm-hmm. So, and these can be very basic or very detailed, depending on the level of effort you you need to go through for that. It can be tailored specific to the system or, or even broken down into parts of the system, mm-hmm. or could also use just general assumptions based on agency or industry standards. Most state rules include minimums for what public drinking water systems need for source capacity, uh, minimum sizing for distribution, treatment, water rights, yeah. water storage, distribution, just all of those parts. And if you don't have hard data on what your system specifically needs. Those are easy sources to fall back on and make sure that you're above board on those things. I do really like that. There is general things we all know, but really getting to what that person needs, you know, what the, what the city or the utility really needs. I like that. You know, it's a little personalization there. And I've been part of master plans where that were like, you know, maybe 10, 15 pages to almost a hundred pages. Yeah depending on, you know, who you're working with and how many drawings you need to add. And I know my editor absolutely loves all my appendices. 
Yeah. Appendix <laughs> J. Yes. You can go on and on. And a lot of times there's a lot of benefit in having the data in the backup, but for a smaller system with fewer connections, fewer changes anticipated, it's definitely not a one size fits all mm-hmm. kind of thing for those. You mentioned a little bit about the water and water needs, but I liked how you, you mentioned here in your outline, the source understanding your sources. Yeah, absolutely. That's a big one. We typically on every culinary water master plan we do, we'll look at each of five areas, starting with the water source. We'll also look at treatment capacity, water rights, storage, and then the distribution system. The source capacity is a big one, especially in the arid West, where sometimes you don't know exactly what your next option for water source is Mm -hmm. if you're dealing with growth. Especially since we've got this drought, mega drought out here in the Southwest. Yeah, that's impacted all of our, our systems that we've worked with that are on the springs. If people understood here in Utah, how fortunate they are that you know, most of these communities along the uh, mountain ranges here have at least one spring source. It's good clean water that flows right into the system. Most of them chlorinate it, but they don't have to do any other treatment. It's really inexpensive and it's been really reliable. A lot of those are dropping off and not producing what they have been used to have Mm -hmm. produced from them. So that's been a challenge for them. Yeah. And I've had some customers and operators I've met in California when the the drought was very severe that they're like, we're running out of water for our community. There is no water at all. I don't think that some of that could be predicted and some of it could have. Yeah. But yeah, that source of your potable water or culinary water, as you call it, and the water rights, that is becoming more and more important to discuss. Absolutely. And and having a longer range look at it is a huge value to communities rather than being caught shorthanded. We've got several communities that we've worked with that have put moratoriums on growth, on new connections. Uh. Mm-hmm. As they say, we absolutely cannot take any more new connections until we have whatever infrastructure challenge that they're up against addressed. And a lot of those are with their water source and their distribution systems. One of the things I like about when we are looking at all the sources and connections and things like that is modeling. Tell us a little bit about modeling a system. We say modeling. We don't want people thinking GQ kind of stuff, <laughs> different kind of modeling. Mm-hmm. Hydraulic models are an extremely useful tool that we've got to be able to look at the the complex relationships between distribution networks or collection networks and water or sewer collection systems. So especially with as much GIS information is out there and and most of the systems that we're working with these days, it's a small investment to put together a model and then be able to see how exactly changes to the system will affect other parts of the system. Mm -hmm. You can target improvements a a little bit closer rather than say, well, we need to upsize all the water mains from here to here. We can say, well, really these existing six inch lines in this area are fine, but we need to upsize this one and this one and this one. It Mm -hmm. really makes the process of recommending improvements for distribution and collection networks a lot easier and more effective. Tell me about finding yeah, gold in your I, pump station. I stations. saw that article actually just came out in the July, August issue of Opflow, an mm-hmm. article like you mentioned that's called Find Gold in Your Pump Stations by Tom Walski. That's a, something that is near and dear to me because one of my favorite things mm-hmm. to do is the field evaluations of, of key facilities like pump stations, treatment plants and wells, where we'll actually go out and monitor power consumption. We'll look at set points of where they're operating. We can get pump efficiencies, look at where the pumps 
are operating compared with their design points and their best efficiency points and make recommendations for changes to improve. A lot of times it's efficiency. Sometimes we're more looking at reliability, but with pipe systems, you can clean them, you can replace them, upsize them and adjust valving Mm -hmm. here and there, but there's really not a whole lot else you can do to improve the efficiency or or reliability of your pipe systems. But these mechanical sites like pump stations, treatment plants, there's all sorts of opportunities that you have to increase the efficiency or improve reliability at those. That's something that I definitely recommend to anybody putting together a master plan is to include evaluating those key facilities to see if there's a handful of softball fixes that you can do that will make a big difference mm-hmm. for your pump stations or other facilities. I'm just thinking we're going to get a listener shooting a comment. Yeah. I actually did find gold. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe a gold watch, gold ring. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's that too. All right. So what are project changes that operators and utilities could be looking at? Different projects obviously bring changes. And the one key element that a master plan should cover is to project changes due to those projects, whether it's Mm -hmm. growth, like we mentioned before, or expansion of industrial commercial facilities and to look at the impacts of that growth on the capacity to guide that expansion intentionally. Without looking at this as part of a master plan, you might only focus on the improvements needed right around a new facility or an expansion. But, you know, maybe there's a pipeline Mm -hmm. a mile away that now needs to be upsized, or maybe there's a pump station or a well somewhere that is going to be impacted by this that will need to be addressed as part of that expansion. How do you think regulatory requirements are going to impact changes? There's lots of instances where new regulations can also play a big role in that. The new limits on phosphorus and nitrogen and wastewater influence Mm -hmm. has had a big impact on all the wastewater systems that we work with. Knowing what's coming down the pipe, I guess that's a a good metaphor for the water and sewer stuff. Yeah. Uh, With regulatory changes and being able to see how that's going to impact your system, that's another key benefit and and something that should be included in a master plan. With the oncoming PFAS, polyperfluoral alkyl substances, and like all these new contamination things, those are important to include in your future discussion. Hey, we're going to have to eventually pay for this. Making decisions or or recommendations on what kind of additional processes would make the most sense. Those are important considerations that can help guide those decisions. I like the idea too of prioritizing the improvements. When I've looked at the modeling before, the operators already know where the bad areas are because they're fixing the lines (laughs) and things. So yeah, you know, and so when you have the modeling, it's it's sometimes like tells you where the problem is further up the line or what might be the cause of it. But it also gives the operator like, see, I told you (laughs) it sucked. And we're like, we agree. And this is why it sucks. So I I like how it can help preempt failures or improve reliability for these systems. I I like that part of it as well. That's a big benefit. And and sometimes we always talk about when we need to upsize, when we need to upsize. But sometimes just to improve reliability, you actually had a pump station. We said, well, you need a smaller pump in here that we were able to do a really inexpensive project to increase the efficiency, but also improve the reliability quite a bit. That must be a delightful surprise when it's the small fixes. Yeah. And with the planning process, you can look at those kinds of things and say, whoa, we are way overbuilt here. And 
the growth that we anticipated happened in a different way or didn't happen. And, mm-hmm. and we can make adjustments to cut our power bill and things like that. I've seen as I've traveled across the U.S., a lot of systems, like you mentioned, the building never came or expansion never came. And now, you know, they have a membrane yeah. wastewater treatment plant working at half capacity and barely able to continue functioning because that promised expansion never came. Like you said, sometimes you can go smaller to get that reliability uh, of the system. Yeah. And maybe a few less ulcers for those who are operating all these systems. The part that everyone skips the front part, they maybe read kind of abstract and then they go to the section about money, the dollars. What is the bottom line? Yes. How much is this going to cost me? Kind of deal. So let's talk about that a little bit. And that that is a, a key part of a master plan it is a, a capital facilities plan that looks at here's what we found and, and translates that into what it means in dollars. Whenever we do a master plan, we'll, we'll make the recommendations for improvements and, and adjustments to the system mm-hmm. but, and then also provide those opinions of probable cost. That's another fun engineering term that I've always liked since I've been in the industry. We're not providing uh-huh. estimates or projections, it's opinions of probable costs for things. We're going to take that down a couple notches and this is what we think it might maybe cost perhaps. In light of the current market, I've been on those projects where all of a sudden steel doubled in price and 50% increase on the project. I've seen it. So I I get why we say probable quote unquote. (laughs) Yeah. And this is our opinion, which we work hard on those and, and we base it on the best data that we have. We typically will pull from as many similar and very recently bid construction projects that we have to mm-hmm. get the best projections we can for those. But we were still not perfect. And there's a million factors that impact that, that, that we're just not going to see. I like how you brought in a part here where he says identifying the potential funding sources. Yeah. Here's the problem. Here's how much it costs. Here's where we think you can get some money for it. Yep. We look at that and in pretty much every master plan that we do, mm-hmm. looking at federal and, and state programs that might fit the problems that the system is up against. Based on our past experience with similar issues, we'll use that to say, okay, you might get this much grant, this much loan. The loan might be these kind of terms. And based on all of these factors, if you want to make this work, you're probably going to have to have your rates in this range in Mm -hmm. order to make it work, to make the payments on the loans. Obviously with everything, we try to be conservative and hope we can get a better deal than we project, but it is just that it's a projection and Mm -hmm. we look close at at what we can do to make it work and try to soften the burden on users that are going to be paying the rates. We talked a little Mm -hmm. bit about areas where a system counted on growth and built a big plant or pump station then they didn't have the girls happen. And now you've got fewer people that are on the hook for a larger cost that's not being offset by additional users or impact fees from, mm-hmm. from that growth. And, and that can be tough. So it's definitely something that we're cognizant of when we're putting the master plans together. I remember in the city I live, our rates went up surprisingly, like overnight. There, there was not good PR oh. on this one. And I happened to have a girlfriend that worked for the city. I was able to call her up and she was in the engineering group. I'm like, what in the hay just happened? <laughs> Because it was like, you know, 30, 40% increase. And she goes, oh, well, the funding changed. And now we have to provide all the funding ourselves. And, you know, that was a decision they weren't as operators or as the water system were allowed. That was made above their pay grade, basically. But they had some users coming after them, including myself. I was asking questions. I wasn't coming after them. But uh, (laughs) but people do look at that. 
I mean, that's sometimes the only connection that users have with their water system other than I turn it on and I turn it off. And it's tough to get an idea of scale Mm -hmm. if people in most of these rural communities in Utah knew what people in Phoenix and Mesa are paying for water every month. They might not complain as much (laughs) about their bills. Maybe not. But we've got so many (laughs) systems that have rural city councils that don't want to change rates. So they don't. And they haven't had rate increases Mm -hmm. in 30 years. The cost for, for maintaining their system or the cost that they should be expending for things that they should be doing to maintain their systems are going up and up and up. And more often than not, the rates are not. So we get into situations where you're like, well, you can run everything into the ground and cease to have a water system or bump rates up 40% in one whack and get the backlash from the communities from that. It is a little easier if it's done slowly over time. Sure. And that's one of my favorite things that systems do in connection with master planning efforts is that they'll look at those short-term and long-term improvements that they need and the projected funding packages and and everything together and say, okay, we need to be on this kind of rate increase schedule. And they lay out those rate increases to be Mm -hmm. so much every year or just having it mapped out for the next five or 10 years and have that one action go to city council to be voted on one time and rip that bandaid off. You say, okay, this is what we need and this is why we need it to fund those improvements. We're going to need to increase rates in this way. And to just get it done rather than Mm -hmm. having to vote on rate increases every year and having councils change and be scared of getting run off because they're increasing rates. I do like that idea. Get one approval, have it planned out, have one approval, a gradual increase. I've been to those meetings where it comes up every year and it's not even really a question of whether it's needed or not. It becomes a whole political thing, like you're saying. And Politics don't turn the water on. No, unfortunately, typically. They don't. That's a little difficult. If I I had a nickel for every time someone came in and said, Well, I'm on a fixed income, and like, okay. If I had a nickel for all of those, then I could give those nickels to everyone that is on a fixed income and and they could pay their water rights no problem. I'm sure. It's a very real thing for a lot of people. It's tough. How does a city or a utility get started? What do you need as an engineering firm to get going? I think the first taking off point in getting started with a master plan process is really determining what level of detail that you need. Okay. Looking at whether we need to break down into subparts of the system if we have a general plan and we're worried about our capacity to accommodate growth, then it's well worth it added investment and additional level of detail in getting that plan put together. You need to decide if you're going to do like only a water system or only wastewater, or if you're going to do a combined analysis. Yeah. A lot of the parts of those plans are similar where really you're looking at what you expect to happen in your city and that affects the Mm -hmm. water and the sewer and any secondary systems that you have, you know, along with roads and gas and electrical and a lot of those other details, it does make sense to look at them together when you can. Some cities don't like the idea of of tackling everything all at once. So, you know, it's definitely not a must, but something that can help. What kind of data do you need from your customer? We mentioned a little bit before the first thing that's super helpful in, in making the process go smoothly is the GIS data. Mm-hmm. If you've got it and can hand it over or, or share it with whoever's putting your master plan together, that makes everything go a lot more smoothly. will increase the accuracy of everything. One thing that we do a lot of times 
is if we don't have that GIS data, then we'll include an item for survey to go shoot every manhole in the system. Mm -hmm. And then we pull the lids and measure down and get inverts on each of those manholes and then generate that GIS data so that we've got it both for the master plan now and for future stuff when they've got maintenance questions where somebody's tearing up a road and they want to know where stuff is. A lot of cities will use that for their, their blue stake stuff. I've walked a lot of pipelines in my first job being the young professional. I got to go out in the heat (laughs) and walk a lot of pipelines for that reason. So what about like record drawings? Yeah. So a lot of times we'll work with a system that has GIS data of their system, but since then they've had four projects that either didn't get incorporated or changed things that aren't shown on those GIS records. So that's helpful for the collection networks and the distribution networks, Mm -hmm. but particularly for any facility work that's done. Record drawings are super helpful to know the pipe configurations within facilities and be able to understand how systems work without as much effort as visiting and and looking at every detail fresh. It's still Uh helpful to visit the facilities to see how they work. But if you've got an idea from record drawings and then can improve that just by visiting sites, and that's a huge help in developing a master plan. And a lot easier on the feet. Absolutely. We'll save the interns from walking all those pipes. Those glory days. Well, and you also mentioned the work orders and general plans being part of that information as well. Yeah, The work orders is something that we've used on a few of the plans we do. A lot of the systems that we work with that are smaller don't have records of work orders to show exactly where they've had service calls and, and issues that they've addressed. But if your system does have that, that can be a, a huge benefit and and putting together a master plan and spurring some of that input from operators who obviously know more about what's hard for them to deal with with their system than an outside Mm -hmm. consultant or someone in their city's engineering department that's trying to put together the plan. I've found too, as I've worked with the more senior operators, there's stuff that isn't listed anywhere that they've done over time, fixes and changes and stuff that were considered so minor. It wasn't in a record drawing or it was done internally. So there wasn't really, depending on how they're record keeping was, you know, work order for it. And those experienced operators are worth their weight in gold trying to get the history of a site or yeah, a location. Absolutely. There's countless times where you go to a site and you say, well, that's not what was shown on here. And you get the explanation of, uh-huh. oh, we had this broke down in the middle of the night and we couldn't get parts. And we had this 45 and this 22 and a half sitting here. And so we did it like this. I'm like, wow. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Made it work. Knowing where all the bodies are buried. Speaking in pipelines, you know, yes. not, not of real bodies, but right. yeah. The pipelines. <laughs> the pipelines, exactly. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> once they've got all the data and a master plan is developed, what happens next? The next step, if you have the master plan put together, if the important people, like the, the operators and the city administration has reviewed it and provided their comments and fixed the dumb mistakes that consultant may have made in their ignorance, mm-hmm. we typically will have the cities adopt the plan and, and make it official, actually take it to council, present it, uh-huh. allow opportunity for public to provide input and have that plan officially adopted as, as the mesh plan for the water sewer system that they can then base some of their future decisions on. And then plan for the updates. Yes. Yeah. I think that's awesome because I've worked on projects for different cities that they had a 15 year master plan 
but then life completely changed by year 10. And they're like, we need to reevaluate yep. because like this growth didn't come in or unexpected growth came in or some kind of regulatory need or something like that. So you know, planning for updates, once you do it, it's not good for 25, 50 no, years. Absolutely not. Even if you are planning for 20 or, or even 40 years, sometimes we do for uh, water rights in particular. Mm hmm. It's a moving target. There's this quote that I really like. I'm not sure if it's Albert Einstein or Yogi Berra. I've heard it attributed to both of them. Okay. That's a wide range. <laughs> We're talking in profoundness, but in theory, there is no difference between theory and practice. But in practice, there is. Got it. So we put these mash plans together in a complaint or something that someone might say against the idea of master planning is, well, you don't know what's going to happen anyways. Like, no, you're right. We don't. Nobody knows exactly how it's going to happen, when and where things are going to change and when gas prices are going to be above $6 all of a sudden. And we'll have yeah. changes to deal with. But getting a master plan together with the best information that you have available at the time gives you something to start from. So ideally you put together that master plan with your best information that you've got and you look out 20 years and then well before that 20 years, you take another look, maybe in five, seven years, you open that up and you say, okay, we projected this much growth, these improvements in these areas. And you've got a document that has all your assumptions that drove the decisions and recommendations that you made for improvements. And you can go through those and see which ones are the same which ones are different and adjust your path mm -hmm. forward based on that. I was taught the word living document. Yes, I like that. It's, it's a, a living document. It's going to grow. It's going to change. It's going to morph. It's not a concrete. This is done. This is what it's going to be. And the numbers you do today in 20 years might not even be applicable right. anymore. Yeah. There's a lot that can change in a short time. And, and this last few years is a great example of that because a lot has changed. Oh yeah. <laughs> Ever yeah. so slightly. It's, like I said, a, a living document. I really like that. It's, it's not engraved in stone or bronze. Mm -hmm or anything like that, but it's a word doc on a shared site that changes all the time. That's one of the fun changes that we've been seeing and collaborating on documents is being able to share a link to a file someplace online that uh -huh. uh, people can access and provide comments or adjust rather than actually downloading and sending a file back and forth or mailing hard copies around. All right. If you just validated my editor's love of ah, SharePoint, I did it. I'm... Uh, Ah. ah, all right, Larry, that yeah. one was for you. All right. Well, are there any lessons learned that something you experienced or that you want to share? We always have bumps in the road, naturally mm -hmm. getting started on, on any kind of process or, or plan. But I think the biggest thing is that we have learned is that the exchange rate between prevention and cure is pretty good on the prevention side. So it's something like... Mm -hmm. It's like an ounce prevention is worth at least a pound of cure. And it, it changes all the time, but cities that spend the time and, and resources to put together good plans are generally, you know, more prepared and better suited to accommodate the changes that they see rather than being caught under the gun and, and saying, whoa, 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 stop everything or getting on water restrictions. And or now we have to have a bond for, you know, $5 yes. million. Dollars. And now that one's always an exciting <laughs> council meeting. Yep, it is. 
And any public comment on that? I love that when we have public hearings on new bonds, mm-hmm. because it's hard to explain when a system hasn't done anything or hasn't done enough of their maintenance and repairs that they should have been doing over the last 20 years. And then you get caught with a long list and, and no money to do it. Yeah. And I could hear a lot of our listeners knowing that frustration because everyone likes to, well, it's not broken today. It works just fine. It could break, but we'll just let it break on the next person's watch. Yeah, Yeah. that's something that you hear all the time. Well, I'm retiring in six years and get me to that point and that's it. Someone else's problem. Yeah, Yeah. we've got somewhere we've recommended, hey, it probably makes sense to add lift stations here. And it's like, well, I think that's about the time that I retire is when you put a lift station in my system because not dealing with that. Well, Devin, thank you so much for joining us today. I have been wanting to talk about master planning for a long time. So I really appreciate you coming in and and being a guest and, and talking about it, nerding a little with me. There is so much more that could be discussed about this topic that we don't sure. have time for, but I want to encourage our listeners. If you have questions, give Devin a shout and ask those questions. It's better to know ahead of time than afterwards. Like you said, that, that ounce of prevention. Yeah. So, and this is new to you, Devin, but we do the Wanda's Water tidbit. This is the part of the show that I have dedicated to my mom, Wanda, who sends me bits of trivia and information on water. And this is the part of the podcast where we get to celebrate whatever is unusual and sometimes even brilliant about water. And today we're going to cover microwaves and water. Okay. Okay. So you've boiled water in the microwave before, right? I love it. The FDA even has a little uh, write-up about it, how it happens, but basically microwaves cause water molecules and food to vibrate, which produces heat. And microwaves use an electron tube called a magnetron. And if you've ever had to replace one in your microwave, it almost as cost effective to just buy yeah. a whole new microwave. <laughs> my, my husband's very stubborn about re- replacing them, but it's almost worth getting rid of them. The microwaves are actually reflected within the metal interior of the oven where they're absorbed by the food. And as those water molecules vibrate in the food, it cooks. And what I thought was interesting is what I always suspected though, is that when thick foods are cooked, the outer layers cook first, and then that helps cook the inner layers. That makes sense. So that that piece of steak you've defrosted or whatever, it's cooked on the outside, but still frozen on the inside. Yeah, that's the burrito yep. that still has the frozen center. No, it's boiling yes. on the outside. Yes, yes. You're like, surely it's heated all the way through. No, not at all. And the water though is actually heated directly. When we're boiling something on the, a stove, like the kettle, the pot or whatever is actually hotter than the water, but that's not what happens when we do superheating. Superheating... We can have small bits of that where that's where the water actually has nucleation sites or small air bubbles and starts bubbling and boiling. Okay. But under certain situations, that water can actually be heated above its boiling point. And I learned that as a very sad lesson as a oh, teenager. No. Oh, yeah. <laughs> My mom asked me to make Knox blocks, a gelatin dessert. Okay. And so I, I took the new big old measuring cup that she had and we're six cups. So I knew I could make enough jello in it. I just put the water in the microwave thinking, Oh, I'll be efficient. I'll just do everything in one container. And three or four minutes later, the water's still not boiling. And a few minutes later, it's still not boiling. I'm like, Holy crap. What is wrong with this thing? I'm like, surely it's hot enough. So I pulled it out and took that package of jello and just dumped it in out of frustration. And the explosion was amazing. (laughs) 
no. <laughs> it was like it was like this fantastic like water fountain, but with like jello speckles in it because they had it dissolved. Oh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Maybe you've done that before with a pressure cooker or something, but I did not realize I had superheated the water, taking it above its boiling point. And so anything that disturbed the surface of the water was going to make it explode. That is wild. And it happened yeah. to be with jello. Of course, because, you know, it's <laughs> yeah. sticky. <laughs> it gets all over everything. Yeah, I can tell you that my mom really yelled at yeah. me about that one. Um, it's kind of funny because after I did more research on this and I was boiling some water on the stove and I looked at it, I'm like, gosh, where are those nucleation sites? I went, oh no, I've got oh, yeah. nerd. <laughs> it's just, is it boiling? Mm. You know? <laughs> I've gone too far. But uh, I want to tell listeners, you do not want to intentionally do this with your morning cup of coffee or, or whatever. Thankfully, if you're using tap water or a cup that has scratches, you know, your, your favorite cup, basically, you're most likely to not superheat it. But yeah, be careful. If you put it in for four minutes and it doesn't look like it's boiling, it just might be that yeah. hot. <laughs> That is good to know. I know. Safety first, right? The things we learn. Yeah. You can talk to your water system operators about how many minerals and, and things are in your water to know if you are at risk. There you go. That's right. Safe water boiling. Yeah. Right. Anyways. So I, I thought that was kind of fun and it explained why I had a traumatic experience yeah. as a teenager with Jello. Well, Devin, thank you again for joining us today and for talking about master planning and talking about superheated water and jello sure. with me <laughs> listeners if you have any questions please feel free to contact devon and sunrise engineering directly their contact information will be in the show notes and thank you for joining us today thank you heather thank you for listening to the water break podcast brought to you by probiotic solutions probiotic solutions offers a broad spectrum line of biostimulants and nutrient products for bioremediation of water wastewater and soil you can find more information about our products and the show notes for this podcast at probiotic.com.